Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Trampoline Hall Podcast. I'm your host, Misha Globerman. Trampoline Hall, as you probably know by now, is a lecture series. It takes place in a bar. That bar is usually in Toronto, but sometimes it's in other cities. At the show, people give lectures on all kinds of subjects. Sometimes they're really serious. Sometimes they're not at all serious. The one rule is that the people cannot speak on subjects on which they are professionally expert. It can't be their job to know about the thing that they are talking about. Uh, it might be something they know a lot about in a non-professional way. It might be something they just found out about. It could be a lifelong obsession or a passing fancy, but it just can't be their job to know about it. Um, after every lecture, we take questions from the audience. Uh, if you want to know more about the show, uh, feel free to like tweet at us or post on our Facebook wall or get in touch uh, through plain old-fashioned email or whatever. We'd love to hear your questions and comments, and if we get your questions, we will try uh, to answer them uh, right here on the show. And that's all we need to know for now. I'm going to introduce you to uh, this um, episode's lecture. Oh, before I do that, I should warn you, this podcast does contain mature language. Uh, the topic is jewelry auctions, and the lecturer is Evan Weber. Um, so I will, I'll come out and say, uh, inspired by the topic I've chosen to speak about tonight, that I feel strongly about auctions. I would like there to be more auctions, and I would like more people to go to these potential auctions. I would like to propose that, as a social determiner of value, auctions are redemptive economic activities. I would also like to expose what I can only term the conceptual conspiracy against auctions and challenge the perpetrators. Before this can be done, however, I think exploring some of the traditions of the auction and defining some auction terminology is in order. First, uh, auction I take to mean auction by auctioneer, who facilitates the sale of goods publicly before an assembly of bidders or their agents. This includes all kinds of modifications, uh, bidding by the candle, the no-reserve auction, the English or reverse auction, but not the so-called silent auction, which is an affront to auction principles... <laughs> and not deserving of the name. <laughs> Though informal price comparisons have always been a part of commerce, the history of auctions and auctioneering is poorly documented. Evidence in Hammurabi's code shows that the Babylonians used some kind of auction system to facilitate the remarriages of their unruly or divorced sons and daughters, as in, if a man wishes to separate from his wife, who has borne him no children, he shall give her the amount of her purchase money and the dowry which she brought from her father's house and let her go. In this case, the purchase money is a, a 
be agreed upon publicly at auction. Egyptian, Greek, and later Roman soldiers adapted the Babylonians' auction system to dispose of captured treasures among themselves. The sign of the gladiator's market in Rome, that of a spear stuck in the ground, was drawn from the soldier's method of identifying which items of plunder were unclaimed and to be offered to the highest bidder. During the later empire, the confiscated or extorted goods of disgraced citizens were also sold in this way. From there, it's clear that surplus food items began to be sold by auction too, and may have continued to be throughout the Middle Ages. Although food surpluses in the Middle Ages, I should, I should add, were scarce. <laughs> it was probably the descendants of these grain and livestock dealers who are responsible for giving the auction the form that we know it to have today, when during the height of the Reign of Terror, French peasants and revolutionaries used the auction as a means of liquidating the art objects and treasures taken from the homes of newly headless aristocrats to establish clear ownership and determine a fair price for goods of unknown value. Other nations were quick to adapt and adopt. To this day, the majority of auctions across the globe concern indentured goods, items of questionable origin, or uncertain ownership. From the start, auctions uh, have been, as one French revolutionary wrote, a good system for the disposal of shameful things. <laughs> I, too, have had my own small part to play in this history of shameful things, though my experience was short-lived enough that my status as amateur need not be questioned, and I can continue with this lecture. <laughs> the auction house I worked for specialized in the sale of rare and antique jewelry. But despite the offices in Yorkville, the mahogany desks, the safe room, the house could never quite shake off the ancient curse of the business, its original disreputability. It was the goods, and it was the clientele. The goods were a mixture of un unwanted inheritances, sad museum collections, surprise safety deposit box finds, and broken marriage detritus. A well-known Toronto financier lost a big deal overnight and took his fiancée's engagement ring off her finger while she slept and brought it to us one dawn. Does she know, asked the boss. If she really loves me, he said, she'll understand. But is it legal? That's what I mean, said the financer. This is the best way to find out. <laughs> the ring in question was a classic, chunky, undeniable diamond and platinum Harry Winston. Mostly the lots were all beautiful, haunted things, sometimes masterpieces, though their arrivals and the bearers that brought them were not always so dignified. It was not uncommon to walk into the office kitchen to find a pair or a trio of bearded New York Hasidic Jewish stone dealers with their pants around their ankles, ripping loose, unmounted, de-flawless diamonds or little Victorian garnet brooches out of the seams of their boxer shorts. Why should we ever declare anything? Then it's just easier to steal, they'd say. One of these New York dealers, Barry Twersky, was famous for his claim to have consumed only Diet Cokes and Kit Kat bars, foods he could easily keep hidden under the floorboards in the safe of his rent-controlled Manhattan apartment, just in case anyone came looking for him, he said. <laughs> the auction was that kind of place. My job was making sure these guys got to see the pieces they wanted to see in advance of the auction itself to keep the Barry Twerskys from scaring off the newly-wedded couples, collectors, and rival dealers, and basically to try to look earnest and professional and solicitous. In other words, to swim against the tide. Mr. Parks, the house's auctioneer, had learned his trade as a boy in Manchester selling greyhound puppies to dog racers. Later he went on to art school and then became a portrait appraiser. On the floor of the auction he was exceptional, but he was in various ways unreliable too, showing up for sales sometimes straight from the airport, charming and contorted from trying to light a cigarette 
note the margins of his catalog and put on his cufflinks at the same time. My employer, a punctilious Sotheby's former gemologist, was convinced that real success for the company could only come from the training of an in-house auctioneer. He himself had tried running his sales at one point, but he'd given up, realizing that he lacked the requisite charm and relaxation. And in this regard, if I wasn't necessarily the best, I was at least available. Every auction house and every market has its own peculiarities, but whether the material being sold is fine art or jewelry or canned herring, there are certain features that all auctions share. There are always three parties involved in the sale. There are the consigners, there's the house, and there are the bidders. If this system isn't familiar to anyone here, it's probably self-explanatory. The house facilitates the sale of the consigner's goods to the bidders, and for a price determined by the bidders collectively. In real time, uh, that's the theory uh, because the price is collectively determined uh, that it is more fair. So if the price is fair, which is to say represents exactly the demand for the lot in question, then it follows that that lot should sell. Uh, by contrast, a retail system requires the seller to convince the buyer that the seller's own price is a fair one, meaning that at least to start in every retail transaction, the customer is always wrong. I won't describe the intricacies of catalog layouts, split bids, or absentees much as I might want to, but I will explain the reserve system because the point that I'm trying to make uh, when I talk about auctions depends on having a sense of the performance of the auction itself, and the reserve system is key to this. A reserve price is the minimum price that a consigner will accept in exchange for the lot he or she is selling. Uh, this number will often have no relation to the fair value of the lot. Remember that the auction itself is supposed to be the determiner of the fair value. Um, so the, uh, more often this uh, reserve price is related to the consigner's own greed or fear or to the much higher retail price that was originally paid for the item. Once it's agreed upon, the reserve price is kept a secret between the auctioneer and the consigner, and making sure that this price remains secret uh, while still, where possible, being realized in the sale is the auctioneer's chief responsibility. At first thought, this may seem uh, not entirely in keeping with the goal of establishing fair value collectively. Um, but the reserve must be honored and kept secret because the auction, even as it respects the irrational feelings and desires and beliefs about value in the consigner, still holds that the price the room collectively decides upon is always the fair one. To resolve the contradiction, the auctioneer must try to make it seem as if someone in the room does in fact want to pay what the consigner believes the value of the lot to be, or to be more precise, exactly one bid below the reserve price. If uh, the auctioneer can drum up a real bidder at the last minute, uh, then he will land gracefully on the reserve. Uh, but if the reserve is too high, after all, and no one bites at all, then the one bid below system sends a signal from the auctioneer to the consigner that the lot has failed to sell. To those in attendance, however, uh, the other bidders at the auction, this will not be apparent because at the auction, everything always sells, or at least it appears to. And this is the art of the auctioneer. In order to honor the reserve while keeping it a secret, the auctioneer must pretend that people are bidding, in essence accepting bids from the spectral manifestations of the consigner's own desires, while never letting on that this is the case. For this reason, room layout, tone of voice and eye contact, lighting, hors d'oeuvres and open bars are all critical parts of the auction business. As Mr. Parks understood, and as my boss never did, arriving unflappable, walking into the room with moments to spare with a cigarette in your mouth, might have been part of it too. 
The rooms that the auctions took place in typically look uh, a lot like this one. Those in front are there because they love the spectacle and probably the material itself. Those in the back are the Barry Tversky's, the hard-eyed professionals obsessed by the system, waiting for a chance to trip up the MC or sneak off for a Kit Kat and a Diet Coke during the boring parts. <laughs> the auction rules demand that the auctioneer announce the final sale price as well as the paddle number of the winning bidder at the end of every lot. And as the auctioneer does so, the savvy bidders write it all down and then scan the room trying to figure out who is real and who isn't. Is there really a bidder 668? Is there a lady with a red hat in the front row? The auctioneer, for his part, must come away with clean hands, always, breaking up the collusions of bidders' combines, never getting caught on anything, never giving away the game. And in this arcane performance, somehow, turning the built-in fear and self-interested skepticism of bidders and consigners alike into a self-regulating engine for the production of consent, somehow, by this sleight of hand, creating agreement about the value of the materials in question. Possibly as a byproduct of the auction's beginning as a disposal system for shameful things, auctions are very good systems for determining value collectively, and I think the implications of this are significant. Just as an auction of barley, quarter-inch screws, or kitchen utensils provides an instant and unarguable proof of what the socially determined value of those items is on a given day, so an art or antiquities auction provides an instant and unarguable sense of the basic aesthetic position of the people in the room. A well-known popular example is the 2007 Sotheby's sale of recent works by Damien Hirst. Wittily and perhaps presciently, the show the works were drawn from was titled Beyond Belief. In the sale, Hearst's Lullaby Spring, a 10-foot-wide steel cabinet filled with 6,136 pills, sold for $19.2 million to Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa al-Thani, the emir of Qatar. Lullaby Spring put Hearst's work ahead of Jasper John's as the most valued work by a living artist. But the sale, at that point, had only just begun. Another lot in the auction was Hearst's newly infamous Memento Mori, For the Love of God a human skull shaped in platinum and set with 8,601 diamonds, weighing a total of 1,106.18 carats. It was modeled on an 18th century human skull, remade completely but for the teeth. The asking price was 100 million US dollars, or 75 million euros. Hearst had been breaking sale records consistently for over a decade, and Sotheby's had every reason to expect a sale, but as the slide came up and the bidding started, it was clear right from the beginning the lot just wouldn't sell. Bidders who moments before had been vying jealously for positions at the back of the room didn't wave their paddles. Here is another important difference between uh, auction and retail. In the auction, the people who don't bid are just as important as the people who do. I never felt that anyone ever overpaid for a work I sold at auction, and I've never been at an auction in which I've experienced the stomach-churning I associate with conspicuously displays of wealth, despite the fact that I have seen and even brokered the exchange of huge sums of money for materials I do not particularly desire, which I might find tasteless, embarrassing, or absurd even. So how is this possible, and what does it mean? <laughs> Thorstein Veblen in his 1899 book, The Theory of the Leisure Class, or Leisure Class. Um, <laughs> save that for the questions. So in the book, uh, Veblen used the term conspicuous consumption to explain what he saw in, as the new trend of value attribution to goods in industrialized societies. 
In the predilections of gilded age consumers, he noted a point at which, for the relatively wealthy, material things actually became more desirable and more highly valued, not because of their utility in any traditional way, but as a result of simply being more expensive, usually fancier. Around 1920, fanciness was more or less supplanted by planned obsolescence in goods, but the effect was the same. The expensiveness was a way of asserting values and status in a social environment devoid of traditional indicators. The widespread misreading of this value attribution system and the enthusiasm with which the world adopted it was due to the fact that it implied the possibility of a human relationship to material that was utility-free. In short, the promise of paradise. And most of the things that have happened or failed to happen on Earth during the 19th, 20th, and early 21st centuries were and are attempts at different articulations and refutations of this promise, in my opinion. What Veblen called conspicuous consumption, then, is the faulty system of value attribution that brings us to the present late capitalist world market culture that we live in. All of this is known as widely as the hopelessness that it engenders is felt the stomach-churning feeling of capitalism's broken promises produced as much by the sight of the Harry Winston diamond ring as by the baked dust smell in every shopping mall in North America. But to return to the auction, with its publicness, its bluntness, its shifting preference for the commonplace and the one-of-a-kind, is it possible that this unlikely system of fair value attribution could prove, as it were, emancipatory? When Sotheby's published the sales results for Damien Hirst's Beyond Belief sale, there was a touch of impudent pride behind the numbers, which were far below what they should have been if For the Love of God had sold. It was as if they were saying, see, and you thought the art market was all rigged. Of course, Sotheby's could afford to be impudent. They'd still made a heck of a lot of money. But the very public debate that followed the announcements illustrates an important point about the effects of fair value. Referring to the Emir of Qatar's purchase of Lullaby Spring, rather than the predictable, really? He paid how much? The question was simpler, really? He paid for that? It's a subtle but critically different kind of exclamation. Instead of letting us be seduced by the money and the details of the exchange and its promise, the attribution of value that took place in the auction put the frame of the debate where it should be, around the art. Thanks to the auction, the rules of conspicuous consumption simply couldn't apply. That this scale of public debate would never have been possible in a direct transaction was proved when Hearst sold For the Love of God privately following its failure to move at the Beyond Belief sale. Naturally, the press and critical interest overwhelmingly concerned the work's price. And sadly, I think, by going retail, the significance of the work was eroded. I personally hold the opinion that the art we like reflects our values often more completely than we do, so I think whatever encourages and aids debate about the value and significance of art is to be encouraged. But even if you don't agree about the value and significance about discussions of art, there are other examples of auctions creating a frame around ideas which are useful. I shall never forget a scene which took place in the city of St. Louis. St. Louis. <laughs> It's happening again. <laughs> I'm quoting someone else, so I'll try and be respectful and start again. I shall never forget a scene which took place in the city of St. Louis. A man and his wife were brought from the country to the city for sale. They were taken to the rooms of Austin and Savage, auctioneers. Several slave speculators, who are always to be found at auctions where slaves are to be sold, were present. The man was first put up and sold to the highest bidder. The wife was next ordered to ascend the platform. 
She slowly obeyed the order. The auctioneer commenced, and soon several hundred dollars were bid. My eyes were intensely fixed on the face of the woman, whose cheeks were wet with tears. But a conversation between the slave and his new master attracted my attention more. The slave was begging his new master to purchase his wife. Said he, Master, if you'll only buy my fanny, I know you'll get the worth of her. She is a good cook, a good washer, and her last mistress liked her very much. If you'll only buy her, how happy I shall be. The new master replied that he did not want her, but said if she sold cheap, he would purchase her. I watched the countenance of the man while the different persons were bidding on his wife. When his new master bid on his wife, you could see the smile upon his countenance and the tears stop. But as soon as another bid, you could see the countenance change and the tears start afresh. From this change of countenance, one could see the workings of the inmost soul. But his suspense did not last long. The wife was struck off to the highest bidder, who proved not to be the owner of her husband. As soon as they became aware that they were to be separated, they both burst into tears. And as she descended the auction stand, the husband, walking up to her and taking her by the hand, said, Well, Fanny, we are to part forever on earth. You've been a good wife to me. I did all that I could to get my new master to buy you, but he did not want you. And all I have to say is, I really hope you'll try to meet me in heaven. I shall try to meet you there. The wife made no reply, but her sobs and cries told too well her own feelings. I saw the countenances of a number of whites who were present too, and whose eyes were dim with tears at hearing the man bid his wife farewell. Few persons who visited the slave states have not, on their return, told of the gangs of slaves they've seen on their way to the southern market. The trade presents some of the worst and revolting, atrocious scenes which can be imagined. Slave prisons, slave auctions, handcuffs, whips, chains, bloodhounds, and other instruments of cruelty are part of the furniture which belong to the American slave trade, enough to make humanity bleed at every pore to see these implements of torture. These words that I've just read are from The Liberty Bell by William Wells Brown in 1848. Brown was an escaped slave who worked on the Underground Railroad, became a novelist, playwright, and eventually was hired as a lecturer for the New York Anti-Slavery Society, who sponsored his speaking tours throughout Europe and the Americas. Such descriptions of the slave trade were vital in the rhetorical arsenal of the abolitionists, and it's particularly interesting for me to note how many such scenes occur in abolitionist literature. Reports of indentured labor tend to vary between the monotonous and the shockingly violent. Orators and writers like Brown, however, found that the public scene of the slave auction, particularly its unambiguous implication of the public and its mixture of the mundane and the tragic, to be more effective. Brown died in Boston in 1878, having lived long enough to see the abolition of legal slavery throughout the Western world, knowing undoubtedly that the public attribution of value is more than important. It can be a matter of life and death. And it's only through the attempt to attribute value that we come to realize that some things simply are not for sale. Much then that I would like to see the auction given its rightful place as preparer of debates and writer of wrongs. I don't see the likelihood of making it the means of daily economic transaction. I do think, however, that there are some auction principles that might be adapted and brought to bear on other problems we face. Placing the exchange of goods and the determining of value before an assembled public, the auction undoes the possibility of conspicuous consumption, and it ties value to material rather than the narrative of value itself. But perhaps more importantly, this system for the disposal of what is shameful makes the claim that the value of anything is never final, but only what we agree on, or agree to agree on, moment to moment. That from this constant change of countenance, as Brown wrote, one can see the workings of the inmost soul... The contingency this implies might be frightening, but there is a hopeful aspect to it also. The obverse 
of the disposal of what is shameful. And it's this, that our sense of what has value is tied inevitably to pleasure, particularly to the kind of pleasure that comes from when you're in a group of people, all listening carefully, watching something, and then, when the time is right, holding up your paddle or holding up your hand and saying, I will bid on that. Thank you. Evan Weber, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to the Trampoline Hall Podcast. I'm Misha Goldman. Up next, the Q&A. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Are there are there any questions? Uh, yes, yes. What's the most tasteless thing you've seen put up for auction? The question is, what's the most tasteless thing what's you've seen put up for auction? Thing? I don't know. People really like engagement rings, like a particular kind of engagement ring. Like there's certain things that just always sell for, for a lot, and and it baffles me. Um, Why do you think they like engagement? Because they're nice rings, or because like I you think like, people like, like to get them engaged love. a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> but and, and, and are, do they not? Are, there, are do wedding rings not sell because people don't actually like to get married? They just like actually, to be engaged. The, yeah. Well, in the case of in the case of a lot of the people that, that we saw when I worked for the auction company, yeah, they they get engaged a lot and then they break off the engagement. They'd have to come back and get a new ring. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, people, yeah, a lot of people buy used engagement rings. Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of it is sort of funny to be like, oh, here's a memento of a relationship that didn't work out for someone else. Maybe it'll maybe it'll work for that. Maybe it'll work for that. There's a whole subsidiary industry of resetting the stones and cutting them out because people think it's bad luck. Uh, it's bad luck, so it's, but it's not bad luck if you just if you just take the. It's not bad luck if you're the setter, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Go ahead. Anything else? Anything else people want to know? Uh, yes. Yes, you, man. Well, it, some uh, unscrupulous auctioneers uh, sometimes do that and and can be accused of that. But part of the part of the beauty of the system uh, is having you know having like dealers and other really like tough t- like having a tough crowd who's there to write things down so they can call you on that stuff and really like your business will evaporate instantly if anyone suspects that you do that. It's sort of funny because it, se- it seems like you're playing off two different ideas of how the value of something works. That like, like on the one hand, it seems perfectly fair to, to bid it up like that. If you assume that the value of a thing is inherent in the thing, it's like, well, the person's just going to pay 
how much they want for it. And, and if I invent characters to make them do that, it doesn't matter. But the difference is that it's happening in a, in a room with other people. So yeah. that's, and that's really like what's, I mean, that's what's really different about it. So you're, you're accepting the fact, like if you're going to be bidding on something and then and no one else is putting up their hand, then you're, you're also bidding on the fact that everyone thinks the thing is crappy and you're like, well, then you either have to not care about that or, or you have to, um, or you can, you can care about that and then not bid. Yes, uh, yes, you, the, the, the man in the red hat. How come you discredit the silent auction? Yeah, what's wrong with the silent auction is the question. Because, the silent, because in a silent auction, I, I guess if there's, a, if there's a particular point I'm making about value attribution in auctions being, being better than other kinds of value attribution systems, it's because, um, it's because you get to see, you have a chance to see what everyone else thinks kind of simultaneously, but it's, but it's, uh, it's moderated somehow in a system that you've all bought into, which, can, which makes room for people to try and fuck with it, but only so far. And in a silent auction, you have no access to the interest of other people. And so, th the, so there's nothing wrong with the, with the silent auction as a way of selling things. I think it's, it's great, but it's not... Uh, it will never be fair in the same way. So, for example, like if you were selling a really expensive, well, if you're selling a piece of art in a silent auction, then it'll sell, and that's great, probably. But um, I don't think that it will be as fair a price. So, I think that it doesn't allow for a particular kind of debate around it. Then. <laughs> but wait, but wait, but wait, but wait. How can you? But on the one, so on the one hand, you you want to say like this auction system is really fair because it involves the opinions of, of all the people in the room, which I totally make sense. But then you also want to say that it's justifiable to, in, to invent imaginary people who have opinions, which but seems to go against that idea. Yeah, yeah and, and, it's, and it's, I think it sort of does, but the imaginary people are, are representing the wishes of the, bit of, the, of the person who's selling. Right, but... Right? but, but so... But, but so <laughs> yeah, go on, go on. So, um, so the imaginary people represent the wishes of of the person who's bidding, and if and if the the imaginary people win, then they win for now. But then they go back to being imaginary as soon as they've won. So then the person who's who's like who want who wanted all of that money for what they for what they thought that it was, then they're stuck with it and they don't get it. So it's because they've defied the they've defied the opinions of the room. So then they're stuck with the thing and they're right. So the imaginary people they get their comeuppance, but but yeah, but but, <laughs> but but they're still but it still seems funny. Like it still seems somehow like. But when they do actually inform the press, it's like if I, if, if 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 I go for a job interview and I have all these letters of recommendation saying how great I am, and then after the guy hires, like, well, actually those people don't exist. But but it's okay because you hired me. You hired me anyhow. Like but if you know, but if you know that that that. Wait, I, mean, I don't know if that makes sense. It's not really a fair analogy at all. It's just something I did, and I wanted you to tell me it was okay. So we'll, we'll move past it. Um, uh, um, uh, um, yes, you, you near the back. Yes. In your experience in the uh, auction market, how do you go about paying for things knowing the retail value versus the market value of objects? Like, do you pay actual price for things when you go shop? I, I steal everything. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, you say, the lady in the red hat will pay for it. Yeah. You say. <laughs> No, I'm a, I'm a terrible bargainer because because I I feel like because of the auction I, I sort of I always my first thought is always oh then this this is the socially you know this is the socially determined uh, fair market value for what I'm buying and then I realize it's not and then I and then I'm, I feel like a fool. <laughs> and are you, do you still get excited when you see the prices of things go up just like from your auctioneering? Maybe <laughs> like two dollars? I'll, I'll give you three dollars to four dollars, five dollars. Yeah, sometimes I've done that too. Just a good, just a good feeling. So no, in, 
So I feel like I do that all the time. So there's no insights. You haven't like figured out that you can see into the, the true value of things anymore then? When they're, when they're at auction, yeah. That's, but, that's, but that's why I'm advocating there being more auctions. Do you buy a lot of things at auction yourself? Like, do you like things that we normally would buy in a store? Are you like, do you go? No, wait not, not, not usually. No, I, I, no, I don't. I mean, I think that that I'm, I'm thinking about this. I don't feel like it's important to f- like frame a debate necessarily about like the value of carrots. But although it could be, um, right. I, I think there's other things that that auctions serve better by f- uh, highlighting in that way, like like slavery Slaves. and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, would, okay. so there we go. Okay, uh, yes, yes, you said. Um, when I imagine the typical auctioneer, I like to imagine him with like a swizzled mustache and like a Colonel Sanders swagger. What does the, uh, the average auctioneer look like? So the question is whether auctioneers in fact resemble Colonel Sanders. Or there's not. a really... There's a really funny. Can I tell a funny story about that? Yeah. So when I when I first was was being apprentice like an auctioneer's apprentice, and I was my my boss, the the owner of the company, he was like, I think I think you're really good. I think you really got a knack for this, but I'm worried that the that the clients are going to think that you're not uh, distinguished enough because they expect an auctioneer to appear a certain way because you look you look really young and you don't really you know you don't look like you're necessarily like a, an expert appraiser or anything. So they had all these ideas like. Like first of all, they're like, we can just get some makeup and age you a little bit. <laughs> and then, and then when I refused to wear the makeup, he said, "Well, I'll get you." He got me this. Um, he got me a cane, and he said, <laughs> he requested that when I when I go on stage, that I walk with a cane and walk with a little bit of a limb. <laughs> and and I said, why? And he said, well, this way, you know, he's if you're if this way, if you're you've been wounded or something, it's like you're. You people think maybe you're a, a kind of shut-in or something, and, and there you've, you've had more time to devote to art appraisal and being a, an expert auctioneer, so they'll trust you more. Which I refuse to do. I might have ended terminating my, my career. So there you go. So the successful auctioneers, what they look like is hobbling people in stage makeup, is what they look like. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, you're right. I was just wondering, like, you're advocating more auctions, but do you, do you have sort of a defined scope of what goods are appropriate to auction? Because like like you like you know using carrots as an example, that it'd be kind of arbitrary. Like that can have a set price. Like what is the what is the scope of, of goods? So the question for those in the back is that is that is that Evan is advocating more auctions, but not more auctions on carrots. So the question is what. What then, if not carrots? There's a lot of things that are sold at auction, which we buy, uh, which we tend to buy if we buy things um, that we would buy in other places. And uh, if one can get over, I think going first of all, going to auctions, I think really changes your relationship to what you, the way that you attribute value to objects. And I think I've noticed in from, for myself, I think that's like. I feel like my life is better because of that. Like there's certain there's certain retail situations that I don't feel compelled to uh, enter into, which I would, and I think that would do an interesting thing if more people had that kind of experience. I'm curious to know what that would do. Um, so I think it's not even necessarily so much like uh, there being more auctions, but just people taking advantage of the auctions that are happening right now. So you value it more as a social institution like like a yeah as a way of as a way of, of determining as a way of b- giving groups of people a chance to rethink what how they come to what they value okay. I, I, I think we'll end there ladies and gentlemen Evan Weber <laughs> Trampling Hall was created in Toronto in the 21st century by Sheila Hetty and is hosted by me. This episode's lecture was chosen by Lauren Bride. The podcast is produced by Josh Block. Our theme music was composed by Matt 
Smith. Trampoline Hall is a sumo audio podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, it really helps us out uh, if you want to leave a rating or review on iTunes. So please go ahead and do that. I'm Misha Globerman. Thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.